the kind of problem we were solving is like, how do we help to not only accelerate the growth for women of color, but how do we just like ultimately think about how we're going to diversify our leadership bench? For me, I was tasked with like building out this career accelerator program for women of color specifically. I didn't know what I didn't know. I was like leaning on a lot of research, doing a lot of Google researching around like executive sponsorship. What are the best practices? For me, it was like trial by fire. Before we get into today's episode, we have a word from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help unlock their growth through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements. We create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out of the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. On today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to be away who is the senior people growth manager at DoorDash as well as the global learning development manager at UBM and she holds a number of different things that she does as well I'm not quite sure how you get time to do all of that how you doing me <laughs> I'm doing well and thank you for having me there and I you know I've released myself with this idea that I need to do it all so I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm focused on my work at DoorDash and the rest of it's about rest and recovery and then some mentorship in the backgrounds wow okay that release happened during COVID. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think COVID for many people, right? COVID was an opportunity because we were like stuck in our house, in our houses, therefore stuck with our own reflections that sometimes could be easy to just like put off to the wayside because of work. But I was forced to sit with it. And I think part of what I came, even though we're still in COVID, what I came out of that time is just like reminding myself that I don't have to be everything to everyone because I think as we'll get into this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, it's a lot. It's a lot of work, right? And so I, there was a lot of burnout that I was experiencing for myself. And part of the work that I had to do was like releasing myself. Like I can still advocate, but with boundaries so that I'm not burning myself up. Because otherwise it's just a vicious cycle. And, you know, I'm not good to anyone if I'm not good to myself. I see you're, you're the second person I've spoken to recently <laughs> who's talking to me about boundaries and the uh, importance of having boundaries. For sure. I mean, at least in the U.S., and I would imagine the same is true on your side, particularly in tech companies, there's an overemphasis on speed, right? And so speed is important. Speed is critical to the business, but also that's like the biggest competitive advantage. And all of those things are great, but that speed comes at a cost, right? And for me, I just spoke about burnout and I was feeling some burnout. And I think what I had to do was just like, okay, how can I still contribute value and still move things with speed, but also when it's time to turn off, it's time to turn off. So I was really good in the past about like, 
you know, I would be on literally all day from like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And so today what that looks like is cutting off at, you know, let's say 6 p.m. and truly not checking any notifications, not checking emails or anything like that. But those boundaries are critical because if you don't have boundaries, then you'll be pulled up and mixed up in everything like I was. So that is no longer the case. And I'm proud to say, I think that's the biggest win, biggest accomplishment that I could have done for myself is not only establish the boundaries, but stick to them. Powerful. I love that. Just looking through some of your work and your history, it seems like you've always been involved with advocacy in some shape or form right from the jump. Is that a case? That is absolutely true. I think that I always say is like, what energizes me in the morning, what energizes me to get out of the bed is to level the playing field. I know for myself as a first generation American, my parents immigrated to the U.S. from Haiti and Cameroon, and I didn't have the language, but I saw that we were on an uneven playing field. I went to public schools in the city of Boston, 50 kids, like 20 textbooks, so three, you know, three kids to a book, whatever the math is, but it was very unequitable. And so I saw it happening around me, and at one point... You know, I just committed myself to thinking about how do we create access for folks who have been historically marginalized. So in the U.S., that's many communities of color, I guess globally, not just in the U.S., that's communities of color. And so my purpose, my mission, my passion is think about how do I create pathways for upward mobility for people from coming from these marginalized communities? How did that flow into that love affair, shall I say, that you have with tech? <laughs> 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 that is a good question. So, you know, if I'm being quite honest, I so I was working at the University of California, Berkeley. And for those who don't know, Berkeley is pretty much in that kind of Silicon Valley area. People, recruiters, big companies come to Berkeley all the time to recruit our students. And so I always say that I got bit by this tech bubble by virtue of being in the Silicon Valley, but I didn't know what my entry point was. And so all I knew is that they paid really well. And I was intrigued by that because working in higher education, at least in the United States, you are severely overworked and severely underpaid. And I didn't want that to be my narrative. And so I started to do some informal work. What I tell people all the time is that I was working for free, like with some local entrepreneurs, just for the sake of like being able to learn the language, learn the language, learn the jargon that they were using, because I was using very academic language and that didn't translate over. But fast forward, I got my first role in technology and again, the pay was great. And I'm like, oh, I need to bring others along. And I think that's really in that core to who I am today. It's not enough for me to just experience success, but how am I bringing others along in my community to also experience the success? Success is depending on how you define it, but right now I'm talking financial success. And so the passion for tech, certainly I believe that particularly Black people, Black people globally, we shape culture, right? And so there's so many ways that we're consuming these technologies and not profiting from it. And so we need to be in the space of decision makers, just knowing that there was a pathway for upward mobility for little poor girls like me who grew up with nothing and to be able to access this capital. And I want to make sure that other folks around me had access to this capital as well. You just kind of touched on... um something that's going through my head around around value. How do you define what your value is? Ooh, how do I define what my value is? That's a great question because I've been sitting with a similar question recently. I think particularly in technology, there is this hyper fixation with like a particular profile, right? You went to this top-notch institution, Stanford, Berkeley, for y'all might be Oxford or something. Folks are very, very fixated with these like 
standard profiles. And for me, I realized that my value comes, one of the ways that I am able to provide value is showing that you, success doesn't look one particular way. Success is not one particular profile because I didn't necessarily have those large school institutions backing me. And so for me, how I drive value is thinking about how I show up in spaces as my authentic self, right? Which then invites others to be able to show up as their authentic selves. But also I think the criticality and the critical nature of like being able to help leaders truly understand what diversity and inclusion looks like in practice. That's another way I've been able to drive value. So something that started off as a passion from a very lived experience, I've been able to translate it into learnings for you know leaders to be able to think about how can they adopt this into their managerial or like leadership toolkits so that they can lead more inclusively. So that's one of the many ways I think about how I add value. When you think back to your time at Berkeley in particular, where you were the director of um, African Theme Programming, you made a uh, significant inroads at your time there, focus on, on black students and those from diverse backgrounds to make a difference in the way things were done there. Did you find it tough, especially in oh, an institution like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was at Berkeley, black students made up less than 2% of the student population. So the numbers were really, really low. And so to your question around value and impact, even though the, the numbers were low and that in of itself is demotivating, where I was able to kind of drive impact is thinking about how did we nurture the ones who were there, right? The one, when we nurtured the ones that were there, even though they were few, I always said this to prospective students, even though we're a small community, we're a community that loves on each other, we're a community that supports one another. And that's kind of like the culture of care that I was able to cultivate on campus. So even though it was truly difficult because you're fighting a machine that's way bigger than you, right? I mean, there's so much history that defines that ultimate number that we're seeing, that 2% number that we're seeing. And so for me, I really like to focus on how can I operate and work within my spheres of influence? I can't control like what the state population looks like, what the admission rates look like. But what I can control is like, how do we help to cultivate a safe space I don't even like the word safe space or the terminology of safe space. How do we cultivate a brave space for folks on those campuses? And so that's part of the work that I got to do. So like, for example, one of the problems I noticed pretty early on is that even though Berkeley is a highly desirable institution, they weren't getting in front of our Black and Latinx, Latino communities, quite frankly, because those students didn't go to the, to the career center, right? Even though it would seem logical that, yes, you go to the career center and get your support you need. When you don't see yourselves in those spaces, you're unlikely to go attend to those spaces. And so I was able, right, I was able to partner with LinkedIn. I made some connections with folks at LinkedIn. I said, hey... Our students are not going to these events. Can we create something for students of color specifically or underrepresented students of color so that we're, you know, meeting their needs, but they're also getting to see people that look like them working in these companies? And so LinkedIn was like, absolutely. They gave us budget to bring in photographers. Students got their headshots, but also most importantly, students were able to interact with professionals who look like them. The reach out to LinkedIn. Did you already have contacts though? You just thought, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to shoot my shot and see what happens. I'm pretty sure I shot my shot. I was an <laughs> avid, I, I mean, I still am not as much today, but I was an avid LinkedIn user in the early days, early adopter. And so I just reached out to folks. I'm like, oh, hey, I see black person. You went to UC Berkeley. Here's what, what I'm trying to do on campus for these students. Are you in? And the overwhelming, actually, it was a Cameroonian guy who worked at LinkedIn and we connected on both being Cameroonian. And that was my leverage, um, my kind of foot in the door. I'm like, hey, remember me? Here's what I'm trying to do. Are you down? And he was like, absolutely. He talks about arranging professional shots for the kids, or for the students, shall I say, rather than calling them kids. 
you wrote to the Royal article about you and your professional shots and natural hair. And you wrote this at a time before talking about natural hair was cool. It was a real, real turn up, especially in professional settings. I'm using that word in air quotes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I And now that I think about it, I did write it before like the wave started around like embrace your hair. I think in general, how does B show up is that I resist a lot of what is conventional, right? And so to tell me to be in a space, it, it never made sense, right? And then the equating professional success to what my hair looks like, it never made sense to me. And for me, the constant like anxiety that I was feeling in preparing for an interview, I felt good about the interview, but I'm like, damn, what am I going to do with my hair? Like how, what is the most subtle way that I can present my hair so not to as distract the interviewer? And that's an unfair kind of experience that is very specific to black women globally. And I just got tired of like having to play that game. And I know in talking to so many of my peers, they were also tired of playing that game. And so, I took to LinkedIn, like all good people do, is to just share my experience. And it was more of, you know, while it was a reflection, it was also kind of like a call to action to um, these decision makers, to these recruiters, to these gatekeepers that we have to kind of reinvent or we have to just like understand that here and how how we're showing up. If you want us to do our best work, you have to allow us to show up as our authentic selves, right? And so like, let's stop grounding our hiring decisions in like extreme bias, i.e. our black women and their hair. And let's talk about the core competencies of the role. Like, can I do the work? If yes, cool, let's do it. If no, then we're done, right? There's no conversation that needs to be had from at that point. But at no point in that process should the decision be about my hair. Have you seen things change much around that? Oh, for sure. That article, I think I wrote it in like 2016. I don't even remember. But whenever I wrote it, it was a while ago. So much has changed, particularly in the United States. And let me know if this is, if you're seeing this on your side. Yeah, but in the are. United States, so many individual states have written legislation that said that black women cannot be discriminated on the basis of their hair and like other kind of criteria. But th- things are changing, right? People are showing up to work like this, right? And it's great because again, uh, the less energy I have to put into like performing and acting as something that I'm not, the more energy I can give to the company, to the work, to my team. Things are definitely changing, but they're also like, you know, there are niche industries that are still holding on to their traditional values. Um, and so there's uh, actually a friend of mine, she just graduated from medical school. And so she was taking her headshots for residency and here in the United States. And she had to like straighten her hair. I'm like, why do you have to straighten your hair? She's like, oh, you know, it's just a thing we have to do. I'm like, "Mm, not for me. Right. So while there are there's change overall, there are certain industries that are still holding on to like these archaic notions of like professionalism. Yeah, we still got it in here in the in the UK. Some industries are changing. Some schools, in fact, like back in the day, used to get into trouble or get excluded because you wore hair a particular way. And then a halo code came out last year of trying to change that. So it's slowly changing, but definitely in the medical field, that hasn't changed much. In fact, a friend of mine recently just talked about she was creating a, a cap for black surgeons because she's like, it messes the current caps, mess up their hair. So she's coming up with a new idea of actually having silk kind of caps that they can wear in, in surgery. I was like, why hasn't this been created before? It's like, it's just little things like that that make such a massive difference to people. That's also very brilliant. Um, so kudos to her on that. You're part of the founding team for HBCUVC. Yeah. So when I was at UC Berkeley, a woman who took me under her wing, she was like a veteran in tech, a black woman, software engineer, veteran in technology, Hadia Mujahid. 
she's actually first generation as well, right? Her family's from Jamaica, lived in Philly, moved to San Francisco. And for a long time, particularly as a software engineer, she was the only one. And so Hadia, rather than being discouraged, she took that motivation to want to build something, to kind of cultivate spaces for other Black people to enter these spaces so that she wouldn't be alone. And so she took me under her wing. And at that time, we she was starting HBCU to Startup. So we start when we first started, it was HBCU to Startup, which was basically like, we just want to provide awareness to folks in our community about how to get into technology. So we partnered with companies like SurveyMonkey. We partnered with Twitter and a bunch of companies to just like host these open houses for, you know, folks who are coming from historically black colleges and universities to get exposure to technical and non-technical roles. Because I think here, at least, there is, when people talk about technology, people generally think about technical roles, which is important, right? Like you can't have a technology company without the software engineers. And there are also some non-technical roles like myself. So fast forward, HBCU to startup, we, you know, I was supporting on really just like coaching some of the students who were coming through, helping them to kind of prepare for their interviews, how to position their resumes, and then getting them off to our partner companies. You know, Hadid had the brilliant idea of like, we can continue to work to get people into these like tech jobs. That's important too. That work is important. But we also need to think about how do we create space within the venture capital space? So the venture capital space is notoriously very homogenous, right? And so when we think about, well, at least and I, when I think about like the trickle down effect that it has, right? If your VC is telling, your lead investor is telling you that you need to think about, you know, your founding team being more diverse, you're more likely to think about that in the very infancy stages of the company. And so HBCU VC is not only providing awareness to Black, Latinx, Native American communities about what venture capital is and how you can enter that space, but it's positioning folks to be future decision makers, right? Like, how do you, what's the process of like investing in the company, right? Giving them that kind of level of business acumen, but also for entrepreneurs themselves, they're getting the opportunity to interact with different VC firms across the country. So I've just learned so much from Hadia and in the process of like, doing HBCU to startup and then transitioning HBCU VC. It's just like blown my mind, the level of like brilliance that exists in this community. I've taken a step back from my work with HBCU VC, but still very much supporting in the backgrounds. It's just like brilliant initiative. When I think about maximum impact, that has so much opportunity to have maximum impact, not only diversifying the VC space, but again, capital. Capital in terms of like, you know, ultimate our future VCs who are able to invest in black founders, because we know black and brown founders are severely underinvested in, at least in the US, right? And so we're changing this pipe these pipelines and hopefully changing kind of what VC looks like in the future. How did you and Hadija from getting get her name correct? start working so how did she become your mentor did you reach out to her or did she just see you and you had that synergy there was like a black in the bay area kind of facebook group and hadia was in there i was in there and it basically was like a call for help i'm like hey here from the east coast caribbean girl who doesn't have access to any caribbean food someone help me hadia answered the call and she was working on HBCU to start up. And I was just intrigued because at that time, again, I was like, I want to get into technology. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Hadia was like, hey, you can help me with some of this stuff. And from there, she would just like coach me. She was like, hey, there's this person you need to go meet. Go meet with this person. The person she had me meeting with was um, 
Jabu, she was like the early chief people officer for Airbnb. So she was just putting me in front of some really phenomenal people. And she continues to do that, right? She'll text me every now and then and say, hey, I have this opportunity for you. Are you interested? I'm like, absolutely, plug me in. But she's just... What started off as just like a cry for help because I was missing Caribbean foods and black people when I was in the Bay Area, just ultimately like became or or grown into just like a beautiful mentorship relationship. Man, I love the culture right now. Like, yeah, I'm hungry. I need, I need some soul food. Right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, and even today, right, I sent her saltfish, right, because sometimes you can't either find it in the Bay Area or it's too expensive. So I'm like, yeah, I got you, whatever you need, right? And so I think the biggest thing with mentor relationships or just like any relationship in general, but particularly in the context of like professional mentorship or sponsorship, you have to make sure it's reciprocal. You have to make sure that you're giving just as much as you're taking. And so, you know, I'm very intentional about not just with Hadia, but with anyone. It's like, hey, how can I best be of service to you? You've done so much for me. Like, what what can I do for you? And for me, at this point, if Hadia calls me and asks me to do something, you know, in an hour, I'm going to find a way to rearrange my calendar, make it happen for her. And so just making sure that these relationships are reciprocal. So how would you advise someone who wants to find a mentor but is struggling to at the moment? I think the first thing, especially now, because depending on what spaces you're in, there's a lot of requests for mentorship, but you're not actually clear on what it is you're wanting to achieve. And I don't think you have to have like a fully fledged five-year vision, but like, what is it that you want to accomplish and how can this person help drive that success? And so I talked about at the time, nearly almost 10 years ago with Hadia, I'm like, I just want to get into tech. I want to find a role where I don't have to be a software engineer because I learned pretty early on that was not for me how to do this, right? And so she was able to kind of support me in that way. And so if you're looking for a mentor, I think be be clear about what you're looking to accomplish and how they can support you. And I actually, I wouldn't lead with mentorship, right? Because sometimes mentorship can be, if you're leading or like, hey, can you be my mentor? From a bandwidth perspective, I don't have the bandwidth. If you're just wanting to check in every month, right? Like you don't have to call it mentorship. That's just like, hey, can we, can you and I check in every month just to hold me accountable to X, Y, Z? Absolutely. And so I think that's another thing. Folks, sometimes I've noticed they're turned off by the word mentorship just simply because they're busy. I know I'm super busy. So I'm like, "Uh, how can I support you in different ways? Right. And so don't drive with that particular language. But I think the lesson here is be clear about what you need. Make sure that it's you're pouring back into that person. Right. Because you have gifts to offer and don't lose sight of that just because you're working with a more senior person or a person with, you know, uh, a more extensive resume, you have things to offer as well. Let's shift into the, the work that you now do with, um, with DoorDash and yes. the brilliant Elevate program that has been created there as well. How did that come about? My manager at the time, I had just started DoorDash and in our one-on-one, she's like, hey, I have this idea for a program. Are you down to like run with it? I'm like, sure. This was a sexy company like we were gaining a lot of popularity. And it's interesting, when I first joined DoorDash, I didn't know what it was. Um, everyone was like... Wait, I what? Like, yeah, I didn't, actually, when I got the offer at DoorDash, I called Hadia. I'm like, Hadia, I got this offer. Like, what do you think? She said, oh, yeah, you need to go there. They're blowing up. I'm like, if Hadia says they're blowing up, I'm going there. But anyways, fast forward, my manager was like, are you interested or do you want to lead this particular project? I'm like, sure. The kind of problem we were solving is like, how do we help to not only accelerate the growth for women of color, but how do we just like ultimately think about how we're going to diversify our leadership bench? And so for me, I was tasked with like building up this career accelerator program for women of color specifically. 
when I first started the program, I didn't know what I didn't know. I was like leaning on a lot of research, doing a lot of Google researching around like executive sponsorship. What are the best practices? And the TLDR is like, TLDR is too long, didn't read it. But basically all the literature was the same, right? It was pretty basic. They all said the same thing. So it just, for me, it was like trial by fire. So the first iteration of the program, it was about socializing with the senior executives. They were all on board. And I think that's the critical part, right? You have to get the buy-in from the executives, but the work doesn't stop at buy-in, right? Like you have to get the buy-in, but also make sure that they're showing up to their monthly commitments with the folks that they're sponsoring, right? And so how do you bring the sponsors along for the journey and making sure that they also have a feedback loop? I think this is not necessarily ironic, but the higher you climb, the less feedback you get, right? And so these women as sponsees are coming into the program and they're getting great feedback from their sponsors and sponsors are investing, 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 but they're wanting feedback too. And so we have to make sure that we're creating a feedback loop for the sponsors as well, because they want to know how they're showing up, how they're best supporting these women of color so they can, again, refine and, you know, iterate on their practice. And so- Bringing sponsors along was one piece and then selection, right? Like finding the group of women who are going to be in this program. So for us, we focus on high potential women. There's a bunch of like back end criteria that will lend itself to our methodology for defining who's high performing, but we want to focus on high performing women and like women who are on the cusp of making it to that next level. How do we put these programs in place to help them accelerate their career growth? Um, and the last piece of this experience is coaching. We partner with coaches external to the company, and I think that's intentional. When you have coaches who are internal, sometimes it can feel a little weird and like, can I share this? Is it safe to share? Whereas with an external coach, you're free to share whatever you want because there's that dynamic that exists. Um, so there's multiple level levers that have to be pulled simultaneously. The last thing I mentioned is like, Bringing managers along. So in the article, I talk about the the real necessity to think about how are you bringing your the managers of the participants in the program along for the experience. Because you can go through this transformative experience, but if you're going back to a hostile environment with your your team or your manager, then it's kind of like. It's not that it doesn't mean anything, but that's going to consume a lot more energy. And so how are you activating the manager law? And I will say that that is not something I've perfected. I've learned a lot of things. We've tried a lot of different things and we'll continue to iterate on different things. But that's pretty much the long and short of what that experience looks like and how it came to be. You just mentioned that you've you've tried a lot of things and... What are some of the, I guess, mistakes that you've had to learn the hard way along the way? I think the biggest mistake is not escalating things uh, soon enough. So this is not necessarily the way that I've designed this experience is that I go into the weeds. I go into the weeds with participants and there's that element of like wanting to be an advocate for everyone, which lends itself to the burnout I talked about earlier. But one of the things, the lessons that I learned or like the kind of failure moments is like when you're not escalating things soon enough, if something's flagged to you, how are you making sure that the right people know, but most importantly, like the sponsor, right? So they can activate themselves and be in service of the person in need. Um, so escalating things sooner than later, I think is definitely the what's top of mind for me. I think the lesson I learned, which I, you know, state is just that the sponsor needs feedback too. They need to get 1% better as well. And so just making sure that you're establishing a feedback loop or um, nurturing participants to be able to feel empowered to give that feedback. Because it can be intimidating to give a senior leader feedback, but they need that feedback too. So they know what to work on and what to improve on. Results from the program at least on the outside and look, <laughs> look remarkable. I mean, a 30% increase 
in comparison to those been in the program, those are not getting promotions, is massive. Especially when you look at the extrapolate that to wider data around normal women programs, exactly. especially for those of color. So that's super impressive. Yeah, it is. And I I'm someone who struggles with taking the recognition and, and celebrating these type of instances. Um because I'm again I'm so much in the weeds, like um, making sure folks are okay that I never look up to say like, oh yeah, this is something that we accomplished. And that was part of like, you know, why we wanted to share this story with like HBR and with like the world essentially is, you know, it's an opportunity to say like, hey, first of all, there are multiple levers that need to be pulled in order for this thing to be successful, right? It's not just the program in of itself. And then it was also a reminder to me that I get to celebrate myself too, right? Because I helped to drive a lot of this work. And so it's been awesome, right? It um, elevates my bread and butter, i.e. it means that what I'm most proud of in my, my career at DoorDash. And so I'm excited that I had this opportunity, but I'm also excited to think about other ways I can impact the business. Struggling to celebrate yourself normally. <laughs> oh, I, for sure. I didn't even share the article on LinkedIn. Everyone else shared it. But I what? <laughs> so I think what? the challenge to myself is to go ahead and share it on LinkedIn. Why is that? Why is it? Like I said, you, you accomplished a lot, not just at DoorDash, but previously. So why is it that you struggle to celebrate? I mean, you know, like all good folks, I'm just kidding. For me, even despite all I've accomplished, I'm still working through my own imposter syndrome, right? This idea of being deserving. Uh, do I deserve to be in this space? Do I deserve to even celebrate when things good things do happen? And so I'm still navigating my own imposter syndrome. And so it's a continuous journey, but I'm grateful for like the community of folks who remind or not just remind me, but truly like hold up the mirror to me and remind me of my greatness. I'm really good at supporting others, helping people navigate whatever challenges they're going through. And when they navigate, when they successfully navigate that challenge, being their biggest cheerleader. But I don't often extend that same grace to myself. And so the journey that I'm on today is like, how do I extend that same grace that I'm constantly extending to others to myself? And we can check back in in a month and see where I'm at with it. <laughs> um, I'm getting better every day, 1% better every day. But yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. Talking about greatness, what would you want to see happen with the work that you do? I'm actually transferring into a new role. I'm like, I've done this. I've done this pretty well. And it's time for me to move some, to another area of the business. And so in that, I'm transitioning a lot of the work. And what I always tell my colleagues is like, listen, I'm not married to any of this stuff. Like I did this my way, but I, you have total permission and full range to like mix things up, right? And get some wins underneath your belt as well. And so what I would like to see happen, I think at the end of the day, as long as the target audience who we are in service of, we never lose sight of that. I have no care in the world as to what happens next and what it, you know, what the revamp looks like, what 4.0 or 5.0 looks like. Just make sure that we don't lose sight of like the North Star, which is to really help women of color. I think in these kind of diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, the language gets misconstrued. Like, oh, we're empowering them, or oh, we want them to un we want them to understand their power. All these things, for the most part, and I'm the exception because I just shared. Folks know their how powerful they are. Folks know how brilliant they are. They know all these things, but they need to be in positions to really actualize their full potential. And so, so long as the program is still in service of that, then it is what it is. That's very um humbling take on it because I'm not like you've created something it's been successful <laughs> that's in a sense like that's that's my baby and then you're gonna see see like go ahead and just unravel it like no leave it is it I want to see that grow but don't change it 
it's hard to just, to just be like, just say that, you know what, go ahead and, and just do that. Yeah, I know. Maybe I, I won't lie. Maybe I will have feelings when things come up. Like, like, I'll have, I'll have reactions because that's human. But for the most part, I'm just like deeply vested in other folks winning. Right. And so like get the win by any means necessary. Again, as long as we don't lose sight of that North star, do what you want with it. Like I got my wins out of it and, you know, I was able to do some transformative things, but beyond that, I'm just, I'm good. I guess I'm a very humble person. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned earlier on that you don't like the word safe space. Ah, yes. Why? I, so a colleague of mine's, when I was at UC Berkeley, he actually wrote some literature I can't remember his last name. First name is Brian. I can follow up with the article. But he wrote a really good article when I was at Cal. And it was basically about this idea that we can't truly guarantee anyone's safety. When you are entering in a space that is going to be the nature of the topics are around diversity, equity, and inclusion, there harm may be done, right? So who am I to say like, oh, you know, this is a safe space. I can assure you of your safety. That's not true, right? Folks could be triggered for a variety of reasons and none of those things of which I can control. We can set parameters, we can set guardrails, but humans are humans and humans are liable to say shady things or unintentionally things that hurt, right? And so I try to stay away from using like safe space and things like that and invite folks to think about brave spaces. Brave spaces are essentially this idea that I want to invite you to be courageous enough to share your truth. Whether that may be right or wrong or whatever it is, I want to invite you to be courageous. So like for me, I'm more focused on like, how do we invite people to be courageous? Because that's when they're more likely to lean into uh, the discomfort as opposed to safety. Because like, I don't know that I can genuinely guarantee anyone's safety in any kind of conversation or any kind of dynamic. I can try, but yeah, I don't want to set myself up for that in that way. No, it's definitely, it's making me just ponder and think about that, that word actually, because I guess you can understand the, the intent behind the word. But like you said, you can't control what happens there. And it's more around, we're going to try and put parameters around this. We're going to try and control this. And there might be some hurt occurred in this space, exactly. but it's not intentional. Yeah. And it's understanding that as you're walking into that space, that that might happen. But that is, I guess, also part of the growth and the learning and the unraveling and, and relearning that. When, we, when we're talking in this in the DIB space, because it's it's naturally going to be there, people are going to say things which can, some person can sound damn right ignorant, and it's like okay, and to check you on that, but I'm going to check you in a loving way because we're in a safe space. <laughs> using that word again, however, I recognize the fact that what you're saying, you're saying what's on your heart rather than the intent being that I want to hurt you by me saying that. Exactly, and I think you know one thing that I see people do as well is like we default to when the hurt has surfaced, right? Like we had a moment, um, someone is feeling triggered or whatever the language is. The person who has done the hurt or, you know, who has said the problematic thing, they default towards like, you know, it was not my intent. It was not my intent. It was not my intent, which is fine. Most, you know, good humans don't wake up to intend to be bad people, right? But we have to also own the impact. And so the thing that I always say is like, yeah, totally. I I get that that wasn't your intentions, but the reality is that person is feeling impacted. And so we need to also recognize the impact. And so whether or not it's your intention, because we can stay in this place of not, it was not my intent. And sometimes that can be dismissive. So then how do we own the impact? 
we need to own the impact and just think about how do we collectively, or, you know, maybe it's just you and I having a conversation. What does it look like to move forward in a better way? Yeah, that's the key. I think that's, that's where things go missing sometimes. Exactly. How do we meet? Where do we meet? So we can move forward together, which is not always easy to do. Not at all. <laughs> None of this is easy. If it was easy, companies would have solved this a long time ago and they wouldn't need folks like me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your view on... One thing that immediately comes to mind is like tokenism, right? So it's like a half-assed attempt to say like, hey, look at what, what we're doing, right? And so I think that's where I start to problematize where people get self-congratulatory when they've had some level of success around diversity, equity, inclusion, and when I say self-congratulatory, it's like we pat our back because we, we promoted one woman into like a director or senior director or even a VP position, right? But then have we actually taken the opportunity to kind of be critical about what, did we set that person up for success, right? Like, are they set up for success as opposed to like the example that you're sharing in that we folks are doing it like half-assed, but also doing it with the intentions for that person to fail, right? And so I think we have to just be very critical about when we're seeing success, let's go a level deeper. And one of the values at DoorDash is like operating at the lowest level of detail. Let's be more critical. Like, are, is this person being set up for success or are we just doing this for the sake of doing it? And if we're doing it for the sake of doing it, we shouldn't be doing it, right? So I think it's shitty <laughs> to answer your initial question. And I think it's just an opportunity for us to be, you know, if you're in a space where you're witnessing those type of things, if you feel safe enough to do so, I'd invite you to use your critical voice and call those type of things out, right? Or ask those critical questions. Like, how is that person being set up for success? How are we thinking about building a team around this person? Like, whatever the question is, but ask those critical questions, again, to the extent that you feel like you have the psychological safety to be able to do so. Do you ever hold your voice back? Or are you always very much, you know what, I'm just going to speak up and say what's in my mind? <laughs> Do I ever hold back? The answer is yes, because you have to be thoughtful about when and where. I, I think for two reasons. First, you you know you have a brand, and you don't want to be the person who just calls out for the sake of calling out. I think people there are some folks in that I've been in spaces with that they talk because they just like to hear their own voice, and they're not actually adding value. So whenever I'm going to talk, you have rest assured that I'm going to add value. Actually, one of our leaders said this about me is that. I have a good high quality to voice ratio, which basically means anytime I talk, it's quality. Whereas people who just talk to hear their own voice. So I think for that reason, you have to be mindful of your brand and how you're showing up. And then secondarily, energy, going back to energy. I said this before, the work around diversity, equity, inclusion is exhausting. It's taxing. And Every battle can't be yours, right? And so you have to be thoughtful about which battle you're going to invest and go all the way in. And sometimes some things are just going to have to, you know, at least for me, some things I'm like, nah, I'm not going to put any energy on that, right? But then if there's something huge, right? Or he, uh, and maybe this is opportunist of me, but like if there's somewhere that I can, I know I can add some value or impact a particular situation or decision, then I'm going to lean into that. So from an energy perspective, I'm just very mindful about which when and what I'm going to engage in and invest my energy in. And then from a branding perspective, I want to make sure that when folks hear me, they know that they're going to hear some value. Whereas there are some people that, you know, you can hear and you're like, okay, it's them again. Now, now time to shut down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a number of names come to mind, but we're not going to talk about that. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> How do you define leadership? 
how do I define leadership? That's a great question. I define leadership as, at its most basic level, it's a, an individual who's able to move a group of folks, right? And I don't know if that's the Webster Dictionary definition, but that's how I'm thinking about it. So uh, surface level, an individual who's able to move a group of people. But I, when I think about my leadership, it's an individual who's able to move a group of people while also being in tune to the various needs, right? Because for me, a strong leader doesn't take a one-size-fits-all approach. You have to understand that as a leader, people have different drivers that can help them you know, do the best work, do their best work, and you have to be in tune with what those individual drivers are, right? So a leader for me, you're in tune to who are the people you are in service of and really being able to kind of cultivate or shape your practice to, to meet their needs. By no means does that mean you're going to be perfect every day or you're going to get it right all the time. So in that, I think within leadership, there's a level of humility. I think the best leaders that I've seen are ones that who can admit when they've gotten it wrong or when they've done something wrong. For me, I think being a humble kind of servant leader, right? Knowing that you're in service of others and it's not just for your own ego. So that's those are some of the ways that I think about or how I define leadership. Oh, that was so powerful. I love it. I guess my final <laughs> question will then be, what does the future hold for you? What would you want to see happen in, in this field that you operate in that you love so yeah. much? The future for me looks like retirement around 55. <laughs> 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 the future for me looks like a workforce, a global workforce that is representative of the global population. And one of the, you know, I'm really big on language, as you've probably um, noticed at this point. And so one of the kind of terms I triggers me is like when we use the word minority and yes. people of color because people of color <laughs> are people of the global majority right and so that language is only used to kind of reinforce our you know that inferior inferiority complex yeah. and so for me my my wish my my hope is that i can contribute to creating or cultivating a global workforce that is indicative of the world that we truly live in, but not just like to your, to the glass cliff ceiling, glass cliff. We're doing it in thoughtful ways. We're not doing it in a way that's tokenizing to say like, Oh, Hey, we hired these five black people, pat ourselves on the back. We're actually putting people in positions in decision-making positions. Right. And so really helping folks to understand and actualize their full potential. And so that's the hope that I hope that I will continue to do, not just at DoorDash, but any space that I occupy. That's the work that I'm going to, you can expect me to do. And, you know, like I said, retirement at 55, because this work is not easy. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, 50 if I'm lucky, but. Yeah. I believe that, I believe you can do even less than that, you know. If people to mind to you, like, you know what? I just want to be in a position where at 50, 45, I just want to. Yeah, just- I have to look at my spending habits. <laughs> <laughs> I would then have to interrogate some of my spending habits, but yes, absolutely. That resonates with me so much. The being the global majority rather than just thinking of yourself as a minority every single time. That language is so powerful and it keeps so many people small and yes. frustrates the life out of me. So it's great to hear you say that. B, it has been an absolute pleasure, man. We can, we can keep on talking, but I know you got, you, you need to dial into something. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a fall back, but no, I really love just listening to you and your, and your experience. And where can people find out more about you and tap more into the times you do celebrate yourself and you talk a bit more? <laughs> yes. You can, LinkedIn. I'm, I'm super active on LinkedIn. 
Twitter, if you want to follow my commentary on bad reality TV, because that's my passion outside of work, follow me on Twitter. What's, what's, your, what's your show? <laughs> Ooh, I love all the Real Housewives. So Real Housewives of Atlanta, Real Housewives of Potomac, you name it, I'm watching it. That's that's what self-care looks like for me. So okay. when I'm clocking out, <laughs> talking about going back to our earlier conversation on boundaries, I'm clocking out to go engage in self-care practices, i.e. watch reality TV. I love it. But LinkedIn is a safer place to reach me and find me. (laughs) So that's two two massive separations. You get the seriousness with the work and then you get that downtime of yes. Yeah, I mean, you can't take yourself too seriously and you you have to have fun. I mean, again, COVID lesson is that life is truly too short and things like a global pandemic can come at any moment, right? So you have to have fun with it as well. That's the perfect way to finish up. Have fun, enjoy life. You never know what's going to come next. Thank you very much for today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership, and I'll see you next week. Bye.